This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. I'm very ex- excited about today's guest. His main research interest is muscle metabolism in diabetes and obesity. He has done his PhD in the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. Currently, he works as a postdoctoral researcher in Karolinska Institute in Sweden, and he is a visiting fellow at Edinburgh University. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Brendan Gabriel. Welcome, Brendan. Hi, Ali. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, great to have you. So uh, what kind of research you are doing at the moment? So yeah, um, for the last roughly four years, um, in, in mainly in Karolinska, I've also been uh, visiting uh, Copenhagen University in a collaborative project. Um, I've been looking at how circadian rhythms, um, particularly the molecular circadian rhythms, might be um, disrupted in the peripheral tissues of um, people with metabolic diseases such as diabetes. Um, and we're particularly interested in, in skeletal muscle. Um, and you know that's quite an important tissue in terms of um, metabolism and also in terms of the ability to exercise, which has I'm sure the listeners are aware, you know, has a lot of health benefits for, for those type of um, diseases. So, yeah, that's that's what I'm mainly doing at the moment. So, yeah, it's quite interesting. Yeah. And so I have understood that the 2017 Nobel Prize was awarded for the finding of biological clock. Yes. And right. yeah. And then I read something about the period timeless and double time genes sure. could you could you explain more about those genes and how does this biological clock actually works of course so um, i th- i think most of the listeners will probably be familiar with when you talk about circadian rhythms in biology um you think of some of the kind of obvious things that we can observe um so things like the sleep wake cycle um body temperature heart rate things like that and and there's also things the listeners might know of Um, in terms of hormonal circadian rhythms, such as melatonin, which um, is involved with the sleep-wake cycle and, and other hormones, mm. which is cortisol. Um, what people who aren't molecular biologists might not know is that there's also, um, within every cell in our body, there's a group of, of molecules which actually act effectively as a clock within the cell. Um, and that was what really the discovery of these genes and how they work was what the um, the Nobel Prize was awarded for. Um, that was in, in 2017, awarded uh, here at or from on the behalf of the Karolinska Institute. Um, mm. And these molecules, they so they they are produced from genes, which then produce proteins. Um, and these proteins then activate other genes, which inhibit their own production. Um, so that's mm. what we call an autoregulatory feedback loop. Um, and this this control loop uh, sort of self-regulates over roughly a 24-hour period. And I, I find that, um, you know, incredible. And it's very well conserved throughout evolution. Um, so we, you know, biologists believe that these rhythms may have originally evolved um, probably millions of, of years ago as a response to fluctuations in, in UV light throughout the day. Um, so UV mm. light can be damaging if you don't have the correct sort of um, protective biology in place. So there might have been these genes that acted um, in order to produce certain molecules which protected the cell from UV light. Um, and But now, you know, in, in modern biology, um, obviously that's not as much of an issue as, as we become more complex organisms. But what is an issue is our Um, response to the diurnal nature of of the world we live in, um, and that's of course in terms of sleep wake cycles, in terms of our activity, which you know obviously we're walking about, moving about throughout the day, and of course we're resting at night. 
Uh, and also in terms of what we eat, you know, so obviously we do the majority of our eating, you know, during the daylight hours or, or some, sometimes into the early evening. Um, and, you know, we, we, what we see in, particularly in these metabolic diseases is that the body uh, requires certain metabolic processes to be primed and ready um, for these, these kind of um, metabolic events. Um, and that might not work so well in, in certain metabolic diseases. So, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting, particularly in muscle. We mm. think actually um, almost two-thirds of, of the transcriptome, so the genes that are active in muscle, uh, may, mm. act, may actually come under the control of these core clock genes. So some of the, the genes, for instance, that you were talking about, such as, you know, purr and cry. Um, so you mentioned timeless. That's, that's in Drosophila and flies, which was originally discovered. Um, and then hmm. uh, pair and cry and, and clock and bimal are the mammalian versions of those of those clock genes that were originally discovered in, in Drosophila. Um, but we think that yeah, almost two thirds of the genome might respond to these fluctuations, which the the origin of which um, happens very often in in these original clock genes. So um, yeah, I think it's a it's a, it's an emerging area of research and. Um, it seems to link to, to a lot of important metabolic processes, particularly in, in skeletal muscle. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think that's a, a kind of summation of it. And, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating area, I think. Mm, I, I fully agree. So you said that these genes and these proteins have an effect on, on a lot of uh, skeletal tissue metabolism. Mm -hmm. could, you, could you tell what kind of effects you have already found? Sure. So um, if, you, if you look at like work by um, Shafano and uh, Kenneth Dyer, um, they've, uh, and, and also Karen Essa, so researchers like that, and, and many others, um, particularly in skeletal muscle, they, they've done this process called um, chip sequencing. Uh, I, I don't need to fully explain what that is, but essentially it's looking at what these, um, these clock genes um, interact with and what pathways they kind of um, may control. Uh, and a lot mm. of the pathways they find um, in terms of, you know, the metabolic pathways are, are things like lipid metabolism, um, glycolysis, so that's breaking down, burning uh, sugars, carbohydrates, um, and also even, even protein metabolism. And, and particularly interestingly, mitochondrial metabolism seems to pop up a lot. So, you know, mitochondria are, are very important in uh, skeletal muscle. They're the sort of powerhouses of the cell. Um, they produce a huge mm. amount of, of chemical energy that we that we need, and they also break down um, a lot of these, you know, these 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 uh, metabolites, these molecules that we um, that we that our cells are exposed to after after a meal. So it's very important, and it seems to be this sort of um, axis of of sort of diurnal metabolism um, in the muscle, where these 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 clock um, these clocks within the muscle are, are sort of turning the dial on how active these metabolic pathways are all right and and what kind of practical things you see that it, it has an effect on fat metabolism glucose protein what how big is the effect uh, in the circadian rhythm and what kind of practical things you think there are yeah so i think i think what is hard to to say for sure about the practicalities of it is there's a lot of um, confounding factors in, in this research when we, when we take things from a molecular level into um, in vivo research, so in, into the human mm. body. Um, so we can't discount the sort of behavioral diurnal rhythms um, that, I, that I mentioned earlier and, and how, whether it's cause or effect. You know? So I, th I think we have to say that it's a complex interaction and we can't really discern whether it's cause or effect yet. But... Um, mm. You know, it's it's clear from so if you look at Patrick Schoen's work, um, they're a group in the Netherlands. They've done really nice work with with human subjects where they can take um, muscle biopsies, so little pieces of their muscle, uh, and measure the metabolism uh, of those uh, biopsies. You know, really, really once uh, while they're still really fresh from coming out of the human body, um, mm. and they can see that you know the mitochondrial metabolism. The sort of ability of the muscle to to oxidize um, substrates, burn through sugar and fats, 
is slightly higher in the in the evening um, in in muscle, uh, and that sort of relates to what we see, you know, what other researchers have seen and what we see as well um, in terms of exercise. That exercise capacity nearly always seems to be higher in the the afternoon evening, um, mm. almost irregardless of of whether you're a morning person or not. It, you know, exercise capacity seems to be higher in the afternoon and evening, um, and that's particularly um, obvious in, in high intensity exercise, so more the strength, um, high intensity in, high intensity interval exercise. Um, one's, mm. one's capacity to, to perform that seems to be higher in the afternoon uh, and evening. Um, so that's some of the, the sort of practical realities we observe in the literature from that. And you know, as I said, it's, it's very hard to know whether that's a result of these these clock genes. Or whether there's, you know, an interaction of, of factors as well. So, yeah, that's some of the, the practicalities that we know about that. Yeah, and have I understood correctly that these clock genes, they are not influenced by the light, but it, they work with the 24-hour cycle independent of the light? That's exactly right. So, I mean, really interesting. What we can do is um, take, uh, so for instance, we take muscle biopsies. We then get some of the sort of stem cells that are present in, in the muscle, culture them uh, completely independently of the body, um, and we can grow those cells for uh, you know, a few weeks. Um, and then mm. when, we, when we do something to synchronize all the cells so that they, they're all, their clocks are all at the same time, we still observe the, the um, complete functionality of this clock pathway, and it oscillates over roughly a 24-hour cycle. So that's in cells in a dark incubator, which have you know no access to light, or virtually no access to light, and, and certainly no ability to sense light. Um, mm. We we still see these um, these these auto-regulatory, these self-regulating uh, um, machinery um, in the cell, and we can measure the expression of those genes um, and how how much they're turned on or off. And it's it's almost exactly a twenty four hour cycle, which I find amazing. Mm, yeah, yeah. And it's just an idea that came to my mind now is is that could you actually test that whether this uh, change in exercise capacity is related to the, these genes or actually the light cycle? That if you have people in in the dark or modified light cycle inside, and then if you see the same pattern in the exercise performance, then you would probably think that they are made due to these clock genes or clock proteins. Exactly. So, I mean, um, I mean, what you so often in research um, when you're interested in a set of genes, you would um, sort of chip manipulate the regulation in, in a mouse model. Um, mm. Obviously, it's pretty hard to do that in humans. So, um, for instance, the pair and cry genes. I think there's pretty good evidence in, in mice that um, they actually, so these, these genes are the sort of inhibitory um, arm of, of the, the self-regulating feedback loop. So they tend to be expressed in humans uh, at a higher level in the nighttime um, when mm. you know, we should be sort of sleeping and, and resting. Uh, and those genes seem to inhibit uh, exercise capacity. So if, if you knock them out in, in mice, um, the mice mm. actually perform slightly better in in exercise. Um, so I think you know there is a, there's definitely evidence in in mice that um, the core clock does um, control exercise capacity to some extent. Obviously, it's much harder to test that in in humans. Um, there's some evidence that mutations in these core clock genes have functional relevance in terms of um, sleeping ability. So people who have disrupted sleeping patterns um, are mm. also associated with mutations in some of these genes. So I think, you know, there's, there's certainly a, a functional relevance to these, um, these clock genes. And it's not just in, in the brain, um, which mm. obviously controls or predominantly controls the sleep-wake cycle. It seems to also be relevant to exercise in, in the peripheral tissues, such as muscle and in, in terms of metabolism as well. There's, there's some very initial emerging evidence that mutations in these genes might actually um, change the way we sort of metabolize or, um, or take up sugar um, in response to insulin. But that's, that's at the initial stages. But, you know, I, th I think for exercise, um, you know, 
it, as much as we can say from mice models, it seems that mm -hmm. they definitely do influence um, uh, exercise capacity. And the opposite is true as well. So, you know, when sub human subjects exercise, it changes whether these genes are, are turned on or off. Um, so we can actually sort of contract cells in a in culture, you know, again outside the body, um, mm. uh, and and use electrical pulse stimulation to actually contract the cells, um, and that changes the rhythm of genes. So we see this rhythm, then we then we contract the cells, and then the rhythm is 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 shifted. So we see a phase shift in the rhythm um, due to exercise, and that's observed in in humans as well. Um, and in and in mice, so we think that's pretty well conserved. That um, these these clock genes are sensing um, mus muscle contraction or, or exercise. So, you know, moving forward to sort of disrupted sleeping patterns, potentially to mm. shift work, things like that. That might be a strategy where you can you can sort of time exercise bouts in order to kind of optimize these molecular circadian rhythms. So, for example, in for athletes, if they need to compete in a different uh, time zone and it's an important competition, do you think they can reset the, or, or change the timing of these genes by exercising in uh, different times, maybe night time? Yeah, for sure. I think um, I'm, I think you know generally when we apply so molecular biology to sport, I think it's often. Uh, results in in us telling athletes and coaches something they already know, and I think that's probably true here. I mm. think I think um, you know I think that's pretty well practiced in in um, uh, coaching and, and sport. That athletes will try and adapt to a time zone change as, as much mm. as they can. O obviously, I think um, there's practical implications in that. You know, uh, you, you obviously have to optimize training as much as you can, and changing times of training can be difficult for, for a variety of reasons but yeah I, th I think there's there's good evidence that um you you can mitigate the the changing uh, the change in performance at time of day by by tr getting uh, adapted to a different time of day so um mm. and, and particularly like you say you know um going eastwards generally seems to to sort of affect people more so you know if if you obviously if you're going e eastwards around the globe um, you can sort of, if you can try and start exercising and training at, at the new time um, as soon mm. as possible or even before travel, um, that seems to sort of mitigate some of the, the deleterious or ne negative effects um, of the shift in circadian rhythm. Mm. Yeah, makes makes sense. Let's have a short break and hear a few words from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Furthermore, Fibian has been shown to be valid categorizing physical activity into light, moderate and vigorous intensity. In addition to scientific accuracy, Fibian provides automatically produced and easy-to-understand reports for research participants. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. And I, I noticed you have a new paper in preprint called uh, Transcriptomic Profiling of Skeletal Muscle Adaptations to Exercise yep. and Inactivity. Uh, it sounds very interesting paper. Could you tell us more about this study? Sure. So um, that, that study was led by uh, Nicolas Pilon and um, Julian Zeraf. Um, I, I contributed a little bit to it. Um, but the, the idea behind that was um, often in, in exercise physiology, I think um, we end up, because it, the, the studies are pretty time intensive um, and resource intensive, we often mm. end up with um, underpowered studies. And what I mean by that is, is they, they have... Um, not enough subjects in order to sort of say for certain that statistical changes are, are relevant. Um, mm. And that's particularly the case, I think, often with um, studies which take uh, samples of the muscle at different times and then look at um, gene expression with these sort of omics techniques. So um, mm. omics is, is just anything where you, you do a lot of, uh, you look a lot, a, a lot of um, molecular 
um, phenomena at the same time. So we're looking at sort of transcriptomics, which is how much genes are turned on or off. Um, Mm. And that's, you know, that's very important in in terms of seeing the effect of exercise within the muscle, um, the effects of different types of exercise and and whether we can sort of, um, you know, almost reverse engineer the effects of exercise and understand how it actually works in order to get a better understanding of um, biology. Um, so what, what Nico uh, did on this was um, he, he led a, a, a research project that sort of took publicly available studies, so studies that had already been done um, uh, that were maybe s- smaller numbers of people, so maybe a lot of them were you know, around 10 to 20 subjects. Uh, they, they'd had their muscles sampled uh, in terms of different types of exercise, different types of subjects. So some of them were healthy, some of them were slightly older, some of them were diseased uh, metabolically. Um, and then he, 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 he sort of looked at the transcriptome of all these, mm. all these studies put together. Um, so that really increases the statistical power, gives you a lot more ability to see for sure um, you know, whether a result is, is actually real. If you see it repeated, for instance, in several, several similar uh, scenarios, then you can probably say it's real. Um, mm. You know, alternatively, it also gives you the ability to better distinguish different types of exercise. So we, we see, you know, there's a lot of similarities between acute exercise, but there's also, um, you know, pretty uh, distinct pathways, for instance, between resistance training, uh, aerobic training, and, and then the sort of, um, mm. in, in the middle kind of training, such as HIT, you know, which seems to have some of the ben- beneficial um, effects of both types of training. Um, and then mm. that, that really seems to be reinforced uh, after training. So um, when you get a long, a chronic period of exercise of, of about four to, to 12 weeks, you, s- you start to see these, um, these diverse, divergent uh, pathways between aerobic and, and resistance exercise mm. in particular. Um, and interestingly, we see that, for instance, um, diabetic subjects, uh, exercise is very good for them and has a lot of beneficial metabolic consequences, but they don't seem to respond quite the same way as healthy subjects um, that are sort of matched. So that's, that's quite an interesting finding that maybe hasn't been so obvious in the field before, but because we've um, collated all this data, we, we can see that mm. a little bit more clearly. So I think that's something that's quite interesting. Yeah. And how do you think there's always, for example, when you have aerobic training intervention studies, there's always non-responders. Do you think the metabolic pathways could explain the non-responders? I think, yeah, I think it's a, it's a very complicated topic in terms of non-responders. And I think, you know, in, in absolute terms, I don't think there's, you ever get someone who doesn't respond to exercise in some way it's maybe that you just mm. didn't measure how they responded um mm. and i think you know there's a there's a lot of complex traits and environmental factors that contribute to response or non-response so i think you know there's, there's obviously inherited factors that can contribute to that but there's also um you know in, environmental factors and and you know the types of training that people may respond or not to um you know there's some studies suggesting that um people who don't respond to a certain type of exercise if you if you give them a, a different stimulus then it it can work differently so that that might speak to um this sort of idea that exercise regimes should become more personalized that pot- potentially we can sort of predict what kind of exercise certain types of people will um or, you know will be most beneficial for those people so that mm. that could be something really interesting and i think that could potentially come back to you know, if people have severely disrupted circadian rhythms, you know, perhaps in the future, we would be at a point of saying, well, you know, if you did an exercise at a certain time of day, that might be more beneficial for your response to exercise. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, very complicated area, but, you know, there's, there's emerging research in that that suggests, um, you know, potentially we could, we could give more specific uh, exercise recommendations but you know I, I don't think we're there yet hmm. and and is there any any studies that you know that have uh, have looked at like uh, training intervention studies with 
disrupted circadian rhythm people with uh, with that or yeah i don't think there's been many so there's been a few with um shift workers uh hmm. generally it's quite they're quite acute studies um so firstly just to say you know there's a few studies that have um artificially disrupted people's circadian rhythm so taking them from uh being awake during the day and sleeping at night um mm. and and they develop you know deleterious metabolic um effects within a matter of days so that you know in, including sort of insulin resistance which is also is um is is involved in the the pathology of, of diabetes type 2 diabetes um mm. so you know that can that can occur within a matter of days um you know it is on that acute level it is reversible so um it's it's not the bl on it's not a, a you know a the bl on end all it's, it's not um it's not completely irreversible um mm. so that that that's why shift work or one of the reasons we think shift work is associated with um metabolic disease increased risk of metabolic disease uh, and other sort of comorbidities um and some research suggests that i mean it, it certainly seems that exercise being fitter um, seems to give you a more robust circadian rhythm. So, you know, there's a study, again, from the Netherlands that showed that um, trained subjects, when you take their um, muscle cells and grow them, again, independently, so um, externally from the body, they have these, these higher amplitudes, these more robust circadian rhythms in their core molecular clock. Um, and in terms of sort of actual practical implications in shift work, there was a study where the subjects did exercise um, every 15 minutes every hour of their shift and that seemed to have beneficial effects but obviously that's um, kind of like a proof of concept it doesn't it's, it's not practical in reality for mm. you know for instance nurses to be um, leaving their patients every hour and doing 15 minutes exercise but uh, that I think that group as well did exercise before the shift and they saw some beneficial of effects of that in terms of um, body temperature regulation and sleep um, once the shift was finished. So I think at the moment, we can maybe say that the, the most promising timing of exercise in terms of shift work might, might be um, sort of before the shift in order to sort of prime the body for alertness, being awake. But again, there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of research um, still to be done on that before we can give really you know, concrete, practical recommendations. Yeah, and in this transcriptomic profiling study, you were also looking inactivity. Did you find anything interesting related to inactivity? Yeah, so I think um, activity, inactivity, sorry, um, it, it seems in general it has a very, or, you know, it has an almost opposite response to acute activity. So, um, mm. you know, there's down regulation of, of sort of mitochondrial pathways, um, there's sort of decreased ability for the cells to, you know, burn, um, oxidize uh, substrates so, such as glucose and fat, which is generally associated with um, worsened uh, metabolism in, in terms of um, disease progression. Um, mm. there, there are some specific pathways that seem to, to sort of be specific to inactivity rather than just the opposite of activity, but we're not entire i don't think we can entirely say exactly how that works yet or what the whether that's a consequence of the study design or how we've looked at it so um th there haven't been that many studies looking at inactivity that uh in, in a sort of matched and controlled way to compare it mm. to activity um so i think that there needs to be a lot more work done in that field particularly um looking at you know for instance, people going in for operations in hospital, they can be virtually mobilized for days, uh, sometimes weeks. Um, and that's, mm. you know, that can be a planned, scheduled operation. Um, and I think more should be done to understand um, what, what is happening to those patients metabolically. And if there's anything we can, we can kind of do to, to mitigate that, I think that would be, uh, that's a really, really important area. You know, a lot of those patients might not be able to do act, uh, you know, exercise or activity. So we need to understand the flip side and, and what's happening to, you know, biologically when they're inactive. So I, th I think that's a really um, important kind of emerging topic. But again, as I said, we don't have the, the 
enough properly controlled studies to really do that comparison yet. Mm, I, I see. And in, in this study, like how, what kind of data you had of exercise and inactivity? Were there like acute effects uh, or? Yeah. So, you know, within very, very quickly with inactivity. So within uh, a, a matter of um, weeks, if not even days, there's down regulation of these, these, mm. uh, there's these genes are turned off effectively that um, are important in particularly sort of mitochondrial metabolism. And as I said, the ability to sort of um, take for the muscle, this is, this is only talking about the muscle, just to be clear, for the mm. muscle to take in sugars, fats, and to burn those sugars and fats. So um, essentially, you know, not dissimilar to when the body's getting ready for sleep. Uh, you know, it, it's it's turning, dialing down the the sort of pathways that it doesn't see as necessary. Um, mm. and, and, you know, it might, it might sort of have a corresponding increase in, in more sort of, um, inert kind of structural, um, pathways, but, you know, in, in general it's dialing down the ability to, to sort of, um, use fuel to make energy, which obviously is, is, is in, in an evolutionary sense conserves, um, protein. It conserves important kind of molecules uh, in the body, but, in terms of um, the current modern world we live in, where we have constant access to food, um, mm. that's not necessarily a good thing and, and can often be kind of uh, associated with disease pathology, particularly metabolic disease. Okay, let's get back to that in a moment and hear a few words from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity, and energy expenditure. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. So basically, there's, there's a lot of studies showing that long, long periods of inactivity, even just one hour, is, has adverse effects to your health. So you think that this dialing down certain genes because it seems that we don't need the energy to for the activity, so the body is preserving those uh, energy stores. Do you think? Yeah, it's I think like that? I think it's uh, again. I think it's one of these things that we we can't say that um, the you know dialing down of the genes is not necessarily causal. Um, mm. Well, it will eventually be causal, but you know, I think there's there's also. Um, you know, a decrease in, in a very acute sense in terms of minutes or hours. Um, you know, for instance, people going to an office job and, and sitting down, um, there's there's a immediate kind of physiological effect of decreased blood flow to the muscles. So then, you know, they're not having as much um, lipid and, and sugar delivered to them. So they're not able to use that as a substrate. Um, and mm. contraction itself of muscle um, has this sort of, uh, effect of increasing glucose transporter um, movement to the cell surface, so the ability to take up sugar um, is is sort of automatically increased with muscle tran- um, contraction. So I, you know, I think that's very very important. And, and there have been these studies looking at um, you know sitting time, sedentary time um, associated mm. with disease. You know, I think in my personal opinion, I think a lot of that is simply the inverse of activity i think you know the more exercise someone can do generally the healthier they are as long as it's done in a you know a healthy controlled setting um Mm. and i think obviously sitting down not doing exercise is unhealthy mainly because you're not doing exercise i think there might be some uh distinct divergent kind of innate qualities of inactivity as I said, I don't think we've done enough controlled match studies to really kind of tease out what they what they exactly are yet. Mm. Now that's that's really interesting. So basically, I think it comes down also to threshold. You, you were saying that it's kind of uh, not having exercise, mm-hmm. but in in exercise, you basically have like quite considerably higher energy expenditure. Mm-hmm. But if you, for example, compare sitting and standing the energy expenditure difference is, is really small, mainly depending on your body weight. 
or how how active you are while standing but basically with the muscle contraction there's quite a bit of difference because you need to activate muscles even when you're standing still that you you kind of oppose the gravity so do you think that it's from the pathways it can be that even really small muscle activation can be enough for these I, yeah, genes I think, as a stimulus yeah i think in t- the sitting standing firstly i'll just say yeah like you said that it doesn't seem to be in terms of metabolism there doesn't seem to be that many benefits to standing i think there might be some that we haven't really uh, elucidated yet such as sort of blood flow mm-hmm. changes and for instance that you know i personally uh pretty much spend the whole day standing and it's not for metabolic health reasons it's it's because i have a sore back when i sit down so I think there's, there's mm. other, you know, health reasons why why standing is probably well, it's probably good to change between sitting and standing for sure. I think when you, um, you know, when you work at, in an office all day, um, mm. but as you say, I don't think uh, getting everyone to stand at an office is going to solve the um, obesity crisis, for instance. And I think mm. I think you're entirely right that, um, uh, you know, the 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 turnover of ATP increases enormously in muscle during exercise. Uh, and, and again, like you say, it's a threshold. So, mm. and, you know, what sort of any exercise, you know, over 60% VO2 max, 50 to 60% VO2 max, the turnover of ATP, you know, increases enormously. And of course, mm. you know, we need to make that ATP from somewhere. And that's, you know, taking in fuel, taking in substrates and making ATP from that. And that is, you know, one of the muscle is, is absolutely designed to, to do that and turn it into chemical energy, which enables muscle contraction. Your muscle is very, um, a very sort of focused kind of tissue in that, in that regard. So, and, and, you know, the body is, is really, uh, clever in the way that it then, um, you know, the consequences of that metabolic changes. So that the increase in substrate breakdown, increase in ATP production um, produces metabolites and molecules, which then signal to uh, the D- to the DNA to the sort of you know the, the transcriptional machinery that turns on and off genes, which enables the, the muscle, the cell, to make the proteins, um, the RNA, whatever else it needs in order to um, be better at that job next time. So better at kind of um, breaking down subjects, better at making ATP, better at contraction. So, you know, that's the idea with um, repeated bouts of training. You get this acute effect in the muscle, this acute um, met- metabolic effect, which has an acute effect on genes. Then, mm. then over a period of time, um, that repeated effect turns into a chronic effect, which is, has a slightly different um, signature in, in terms of the proteome in terms of the transcriptome, um, in terms of the metabolome in different scenarios to acute exercise. And that's what we were really trying to elucidate in, uh, you know, in, in that paper with the transcriptomics of all these collated studies. Mm, you know, I, I think it's really, really interesting way of studying. And I'm still thinking like, for example, in bone remodeling, it has been found that you don't need many strong accelerations or kind of impact for the bone that just few per day is enough for the bone to remodel i'm thinking could it be also for the muscle that maybe if you do like two seconds per day like maximum contraction could it be that it it affects the pathway already or what, what do you think um i think you know so yeah i guess like looking at this kind of sprint uh training and, and trying to do that you know i think we don't really have the evidence on the long term to know how that affects health. For sure, doing very intense exercise, you know, I think it is as long as it's sufficient to generally f- f- to reach exhaustion at some point, mm. um, it does seem to have an effect on the transcriptome. Um, I think you know the bigger and more um, extensive the exercise bout is, generally that has more of an effect. So. You know, mm. a lot of this is is in relation to this this often cited uh, reason that you know a lot of people say when they're asking the questionnaires that the the reason they don't do more exercises is, is time. Uh, I'm not, you know, 
sometimes I'm not sure whether I entirely believe that. I think the relationship between what people say on questionnaires and you know mm. real environmental reasons doesn't always completely tally up. Um, you know, I was I was asked uh, on another podcast what I thought you know we could do as a, on a societal level to kind of get people to do more exercise and be healthier. And you know, again, as a caveat, this isn't my area at all. But on a personal, my personal opinion is that you know, facilitating um, cities so that people can can do exercise more easily and build it into their daily routine. So, for instance, commuting, being able to walk or cycle. Um, or even you know run or kayak as, as you can in Stockholm to work, um, I mm. think is a fantastic way of increasing people's ability to do exercise, um, and that's of course going <laughs> to tie into this transcriptomic effect that we see, um, because again you know the, the the more intense the exercise bout, the longer the exercise bout, the more often the exercise bout is done within reason. You obviously need periods of recovery. Um, mm. that has a better, or, sorry, that has a more robust effect on the chronic, um, in terms of the chronic kind of, um, transcriptomic, metabolomic, proteomic regulation. So, you know, of course this, as I said earlier, this all feeds back into, you know, us molecular biologists telling coaches and athletes and people who are researching physical activity, you know, what they already know that, you know, the more exercise mm. you do generally, the the, the more effect it has and the better it is. Um, of course, as I said, you know, you need periods of recovery mm. in that as well. But, you know, that's generally the case, I think. Yeah, yeah. And also you have another paper which is about uh, uh, exercise timing and type 2 diabetes. Could you tell more about this study? Sure. So um, what we did there was, you know, we were doing a lot of this molecular work um, and we see we see potentially that the, the, the molecular clock in diabetic muscle is um is kind of dysregulated it seems to have you know a smaller amplitude seems to mm. have less genes that um the met our statistical criteria for being called circadian genes mm. um and and we wanted to kind of see you know in a, in a parallel study what whether that has any sort of consequences um in, in the real world um so, you know, what we did, we just, we just got 11 uh, type 2 diabetics um, from Stockholm. Mm. We fitted them with continuous glucose monitors, um, which is obviously a really good way to, to measure glucose, glycemia um, levels during the 24-hour cycle. And, and we had these monitors on for, um, I think it was four weeks in total. Um, mm. So what we, we, we took a baseline measurement first for two weeks, just when the... the the guys were going about their normal day lives. Um, and then we got them to do uh, sort of controlled high intensity interval exercise for two weeks, um, every other day, either in the morning or in the afternoon. Uh, we split the group mm. randomly in, into half. And then, and then we gave the, the subjects a two week period just to, you know, wash out any of the effects. Yeah. Uh, and then they did the, op the opposite. So if, if they've been training in the afternoon, they then switched the morning and vice versa. Um, um yep. no generally in, in terms of glycemia we generally expect as i was saying muscle contraction tends to um move these glucose transporters it tends to increase blood flow to the muscle it tends to have the effect of acutely um reducing blood sugar uh, glycemia because the muscle takes up more sugar um in order to use again to break down and to make atp for contraction and also to store, there's, there's another effect I won't go into, but um, yeah. it also wants to store more glucose for the next time that is challenged, basically. Um, so in the afternoon exercise, we, we saw that. We saw that we, when the subjects did exercise, um, you know, afterwards and a little bit the day after as well, compared to the, the baseline readings we took, which we compared, you know, day to day, if it was a Wednesday, we compared to a Wednesday. Um, we saw that indeed exercise did reduce glycemia. Um, but surprisingly, when the subjects exercised in the morning, um, actually glycemia slightly increased compared to basal. So it increased compared to the afternoon exercise, but it also increased compared to basal. Now, this was a study where we didn't control a lot. It was kind of a, a pilot study. We wanted to see the effects of what would happen in, in the real world. You know, um, outside of the lab and, and 
what happens when you when you just give these guys the exercise to do and don't don't control the rest of their lives. Um, mm. So we're not we're not really sure on the reason for that, um, but you know then it might be an adaptive thing. So after to, towards the end of the two weeks, we saw that you know that effect was was less um, severe. There was less increasing glycemia. Um, so it might be that you know they're just not used to working that hard, doing intense exercise in the morning. What after a few weeks, once they you know become acclimated mm. to that, they might they might um, have a normal kind of exercise effect. Um, it might also be you know changing their sleep weight cycle um, potentially. So we saw actually there was a sort of anticipatory um, increase in, in glycemia. So um, even you know in the early morning. When they, when they, these these subjects were probably sleeping or only just waking up, there was this anticipatory kind of increase in glycemia. So you know, as I said, we're mm. not we're not entirely sure how that works, and I certainly don't think that you know we can conclude from that the morning exercise is bad for diabetics. I think there's 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 work from other groups. So if you look at you know Javier Gonzalez, he's he's been looking at um, healthy subjects and people with uh, obesity as well, and Mm. he's found some beneficial effects of you know exercising before breakfast and not necessarily looking so much at timing but you know before or after breakfast um Mm. you know that's another one of these kind of um physiological effects that can change the molecular clock so you know obviously eating foods can really change the way our metabolic processes are working um and, and exercising before or after that kind of profound metabolic um, stimuli can can have these these changes in metabolism, and actually his work suggests that there might be some some beneficial effects in terms of lipid metabolism to exercising before breakfast. So, you know, as I said, I think there's a lot of work still to be done. Um, I think it could be potentially for you know certain populations, um, you know, potentially especially those with disrupted sleeping patterns or you know, severely disrupted circadian rhythms, they might benefit from, you know, exercise timing optimization in particular. I think for the general public, you know, the time you exercise doesn't really matter because exercise is so good for you. It's so beneficial that, Mm. you know, you you just try and do it whenever you can and whenever best fits into your day. Um, You know, if you want to be absolutely optimal, and it probably won't make much difference, but if if you want to absolutely optimize your training for health, then, you know, try and do a mix of different times you know sometimes in the morning sometimes in the evening i think is probably it's probably what the, the sort of best advice we can give from the literature so far but in, you know i think it doesn't really make that much difference um just try and exercise whenever you can basically so yeah i think that's that's all we can conclude from these kind of memory yeah. studies so far yeah now that's a good conclusion uh so what what kind of studies you have in mind for the future? What kind of studies you have planned with your your group? So I, yeah, I think um, so. One study we're we're working on at the moment. We've actually just um, sort of finalised that into a, a manuscript, but there'll, there'll still be work to be done on that. Is is really looking at this um, molecular effect in in diabetic muscle? So again, we see this diabetic muscle that has this this altered um, sort of downregulated um, timekeeping ability, basically. Mm. So they can't keep time as well. That seems to also relate to their mitochondrial metabolism. So their the mitochondrial metabolism oscillates in vivo and in um, in the sorry in in the body and in the cells as well. And when we take the cells out of the body, um, and that ability again is downregulated in in diabetics. Um, and and when we look at the the sort of interaction. Uh, there seems to be um, controlled by these cold clock genes directly into, right into the the inner membrane of the mitochondria. So right into the core, this the sort of powerhouse um, of the mitochondria, where they're sort of mm. breaking down substrates um, and they're really producing this this um, this kind of chemi uh, osmotic. So this almost electrical um, current, which which generates this this process by which ATP is made. Um, mm. And the clock genes seem to be directly talking to that, and, and vice versa. When we change, um, when we manipulate mitochondrial genes within that that control that inner mitochondrial membrane, we see that that regulates um, 
molecules that the, the mitochondria produce, which then change the regulation of the of genes within the nucleus. So there's the sort of crosstalk from directly from the nucleus of the cell to the mitochondria, and then back from the mitochondria yeah. to the nucleus. And that process seems to be disrupted in in diabetics, so that they don't maintain this um, this balance, this tuning between uh, the clock within the nucleus and the mitochondrial um, sort of rhythms as well. So that could have consequences in terms of, you know, we often see in, in vivo studies showing that diabetics have reduced metabolic flexibility. So what that means is they don't have, mm. have the ability to, to burn through sort of metabolites and substrates after a meal. Um, and this may contribute to that so that, you know, they're not, they're not having these clock regulation in the morning, which is turning on the necessary pathways in order to deal with, with breakfast, with lunch, etc. Um, and potentially then you're getting, you know, impaired storage of some of those substrates and stuff. So that, that could contribute as well. Um, and then we also want to, we would like to follow up um, and, and tie down a little bit more the, the mechanisms by which our diabetic subjects were having this increase in, in glycemia after morning exercise and really tie down why that was exactly. Um, so as I said, we're not really sure, um, but we'd like to do, you know, more detailed, controlled kind of metabolic studies to really look at exactly what's going on, whether that's something specific to diabetics, whether that's just uh, uh, an, uh, a, a response that they need to be acclimated for, so something that, you know, that they would adapt to eventually, or whether this mm. is something we actually, you know, need to know for ex exercise recommendations in, in diabetics. Yeah, so very interesting studies coming in in the future. Uh, I think it, it was it was really pleasure talking with you and and learning about cell clocks and and their relation to metabolic, metabolic metabolism. Uh, so thank you for taking the time to be guest in this podcast. It was it was really interesting. Thanks, Ollie. It was my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. The Physical Activity Researcher podcast has created an activity tracker purchase guide for researchers. Get your free copy from the link in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to the Physical Activity Researcher podcast.